Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is when you turn in, tune in. This is Reverend Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. This is today's episode 357 of Bible Bites as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. The reading today is in 1 Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, 2 Peter chapters 1 through 3, or the entire book of 2 Peter. So let's talk about 2 Peter. The author is the Apostle Peter. This is his second letter. He clearly states that. He gives us the author, and he speaks later about, hey, I've written this second letter, and this is the reasons for this second letter, etc. So there's no doubt or question. There shouldn't be any doubt or question that this is written by the Apostle Peter. There are some similarities between this and the book of Jude. And so, you know, they may have uh, both had the same burden from the Lord. They may have shared some of their insights one with another, uh, just like, you know, many perhaps teachers and preachers do today. And so not everybody. I mean, there may be things that I'm sharing that other people have shared as well. So, you know, that doesn't discount the fact that he is the author of his of his book. It was written probably between 64 and 67 AD, and most believe either perhaps later in 66 or in 67, early on, shortly before Peter was martyred. Because if you'll remember, even church tradition tells us about Peter's martyrdom. And he was martyred in 67 AD. The tradition holds that he was crucified, but he asked them to crucify him upside down, saying he was not even worthy to be crucified like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll remember, after, right after Peter, uh, right after Jesus raised from the dead and he made them breakfast by the sea, it's recorded in John chapter 21, and he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, I phileo you. I love you as a friend. I love you with a deep fondness and a deep affinity, but not quite to the level of agape. And then P Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you agape me? And he says, I, I phileo you. And Jesus then said, Peter, do you really phileo me? Do you really phileo me? Do you really love me? With that fondness that you say you do, that devotion and that tenderness that you say you do. And Peter then, of course, he was, he was upset, but he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you with that phileo love. And Jesus took that, accepted that, and then began to work with Peter. He restored him in that moment. He gave him a brand new uh, boldness at the day of Pentecost, and Peter became a tremendous leader, a tremendous apostle, accomplishing many things, overseeing many churches, leading many people to the Lord. And now he has learned and he has developed agape love, the kind of love that sacrifices oneself, just like Jesus did. And so now at his death, he says, I'm not even worthy to be crucified the same way that my Lord was. Crucify me upside down. That's the work of the Lord that had happened in Peter's life during, those during that time since Jesus had restored him. Praise be to God. The theme and purpose of Peter's second book, he has, I call it a dual purpose. It's both to refute false teachings 
exposing the, the lies, dispelling the lies and the error, and bringing to light the truth about the message. But it was also to stress sanctification or holy living being set apart for Jesus, especially in light of the fact that Jesus' imminent return is near. And so we'll get into that as we look at the book. In chapter 1, he talks in verse 2 and 3 about uh, wishing them grace and peace. And then he goes on in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So in other words, he's saying that God's dynamite power gives us everything we need that will lead us into real Zoe life. That's the Greek word that's used. It's talking about a rich, blessed life, wholeness and soundness and godliness, that ability to live for God. And he says, how will God do this? How does God's divine power do this? Through knowing Jesus. Do you see, beloved friend, it's always been about a relationship all throughout Scripture, and all of the authors of Scripture understood that. Jesus wants you to be in a relationship with Him, and it is through knowing Him that you discover true life and how to live godly lives that please Him. He gives us fabulous promises, a beautiful inheritance. He talks about these great and precious promises. And through those, we partake or we share in the divine nature. Imagine that through faith in Jesus Christ. He talked about being born again. We are born of the same nature, born of the same seed as, uh, this, as the divine nature is. And not that we become gods. That is not what I'm saying. We do not believe that, and that is not scriptural. But God has birthed into us eternity. He has birthed into us eternal life. And part of that, a partaking of that, is in the divine nature. And what I mean by that is that's why and how we can now overcome sin, and we are made absolutely brand new. And we're able to live as new creations, new creatures. Praise God escaping all decay and corruption from our old life. In verse 5 through 7, I want to read this to you because he goes on about, he goes on from there and he says, okay, now, you know, you've been given this ability to partake of the divine nature. What does that mean and how do we live it out? So he says, verse 5, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, in other words, pay attention and work hard at it, Give give attention to this thing and do it faithfully with effort. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So, you know, there there was an old song years ago that uh, was kind of popular in the secular world called Stairway to Heaven. Well, beloved friend, this is the true stairway to heaven, so to speak. It's the true way for you to grow 
as a Christian so that you are ready for heaven. You are ready to meet your Lord whenever he will call for you. This is the the way to grow as a Christian. He talks about this. He says to add to it. You know, Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians 3.18 about us seeing, seeing and beholding Jesus. And as we do, we're being uh, changed from one level of glory to the next. There's another place in Scripture that talks about from one level of faith to the next. So this is that ascent. It's, that, it's like a stairway. You start with, it all starts with the foundation of sincere faith in Jesus Christ. Absolute assurance that he is the only one worthy and that able to pay your debt of sin. Your trust is entirely in him. Your faith is rooted in him. You are secure in him and that's your foundation. But then from that, you start building upon that foundation. And so he says to add virtue. That's the first level, excellence or moral, um, moral excellence, modesty and purity of your lifestyle and of your heart. Knowledge, that's where you read and you study and you pray and you worship the Lord. You get into his word. You learn about him. You talk to him. You read his word and learn about him and learn of him. Then we add to knowledge, self-control. That's that ability to be disciplined in all areas of our life. Self-control. Not allowing our human, our sinful natures to take over and lead us astray, but allowing the uh, Word of God to help us live within the boundaries that it proclaims. And then we add to that patience that ability to endure and stay the course because we know of whom we have believed, like Job said. Godliness is the next one. That lifestyle that becomes fitting for Jesus' name, for the name of Jesus that we bear. We become like little Christs in the sense that we live our lives like he would do if it were him himself. Then we add to that brotherly kindness that word, the Greek word literally is Philadelphia, and it's talking about a love of the brothers and sisters, a love of the family that you are in. So that is speaking of the church. You, you add to that a love for the, the people of God and for those who make up the church of the living God. And then the, the highest level is love, agape love, that self-sacrificing love that Peter came to know when he was writing this book. He knew it then because he was about to give his life for his Savior willingly. And praise be to God that he did. So let's read. After we've done that, it says this in verse 8, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, in other words, if you're without these things, you don't have them in your life, you are short-sighted even to blindness and have forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's what he says. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. 
for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the way to have fruitfulness and, um, and grow in knowing Jesus and not be barren and parched in your walk with the Lord is to add these things, to build upon the foundation of your faith, these things that are listed here in Second Peter. And he says, if you do these things, then make, you know, make every effort, then making your calling and election sure. In other words, well-founded, they are grounded in the truth and they have a solid foundation. In verse 12 through 15, I'd like to read this to you real quick, and then I just want to make a quick comment. For this reason, Peter's writing, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Now, Peter's about to die, and he knows he's about to die. So he has written his letters. He has um, preached and taught, and he has made sure that he's done everything he can so that when he dies, the message still lives. The message still goes on. The church of the living God is still well-founded, well-grounded, and well-able to carry on after he leaves his tent, his body, and goes on to be with the Lord. And, and friend, that's exactly what I know I'm trying to do, and I'm sure many, many others in the kingdom of God, we're all trying to do that. We're trying to make our ministry effective so that even when we are dead and gone, it will live on. The messages will still go forward. The words will still be able to be read by other people through our ministries and through the words that we're able to share while we're here. And I just praise God for that. I know that's my heart, and I know it was Peter's at that time as well. Now, Peter, in the next few verses, he speaks about how he was the eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. So he testifies of that to us, and he's recorded it here. He speaks about the authority and the anointing of Scripture. All Scripture was written. Paul had told us it was God-breathed already, and now Peter tells us the same thing. He says it's all authored by the Holy Spirit. It's one book with one author, the whole of it. The Holy Spirit moved upon every one of the people that were involved in writing this book. And it is the word of God the Father with one central figure, and that is Jesus throughout it. It's to broadcast and to proclaim the good news of Jesus to us. Praise God. In chapter 2, Peter spends pretty much this entire chapter really dealing with these false teachers and false teachings, the error that he was, um, that had crept in, and the heresies, and he makes some points about those. He speaks about uh, serious warnings of these teachers and these teachings. He talks about the righteous judgment 
that's headed for them, um, that they will have to pay for their heresies that they've professed here. He gives examples from Noah's day and from Lot's day with Sodom and Gomorrah for us to understand. He also, I love this. Now, I do want to read this scripture to you. Verse 9. In the midst of all of these evil heresies and evil um, false teachings and all of that that was going on around them, notice the true believer, those that have truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, notice what he says in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So in other words, even though there's lots of evil in the world, there's lots of false teaching in the world, we need to take heed to the warnings and not let it deceive us, not let it uh, get into us. But if we are truly righteous before the Lord, we're seeking Him, we're reading His Word, we're careful about those things. Beloved friend, take heed and take rest in knowing that God knows how to deliver us. He knows how to keep us, how to preserve us so that it won't get into us if we don't allow it. Praise God. He knows how to keep us and that gives us comfort and security for us. Just like, it, just like God kept Noah and delivered him out of the days of the flood and the rest of the judgment that had come, just like God delivered Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah before their judgment comes. God knows how to keep us and how to deliver us. Praise God. In the rest of that chapter, he continues describing these false teachers in stark detail. He even indicates in verse 13 and 14 that they are among the church, the believers. So we need to be very careful that we are not deceived because false teachings and teachers can be in the church. So we need to be careful. He speaks about their serious end, the trickery that they use, and how if they knew better and didn't do it, the end for them is even worse than their beginnings. In chapter 3, he reminds us of the Old Testament prophets and the apostles' words. And he says, don't forget don't fall for the scoffers who go around saying, where is Jesus coming? We've heard it all our lives and he still hasn't come yet. He tells us why they're saying that. These scoffers are saying that because they're, they're engrossed in their lustful living. They don't want to think about Jesus coming because that means they, they need to change their lifestyle. They need to change and be ready for him to come. So they're hoping Jesus isn't coming. But he says, don't fall for that. Those are lies. Jesus is still coming. He says, don't be deceived about that. And so he says, don't forget. And he gives two examples, creation and the flood. All of those were reserved and they came to pass in their time. And they all were proclaimed by the word of the Lord. And he tells us that the same word of the Lord, the same logos, reserves the earth and the heavens for fire at that judgment day, it will be burned up. We're told exactly what's going to end up happening in this chapter 3. He speaks in verse 8, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one, 
One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, I happen to agree with many that believe that, in essence here, Peter is sort of laying out a possible pattern that, you know, the six days of creation, 6,000 years, which we are almost to the end of, and then we will have the thousand-year reign of Christ and all of that. That is one um, uh, interpretation and understanding of the, that scripture, but that is, it's not limiting to that. What he's saying here is, in essence, basically, you know, a lot of scoffers going around saying, well, when's Jesus coming? It's been a long time, and he still hasn't come. So what he's saying is, listen, to God, a thousand years is just like a day to us. So that's really what he's trying to communicate here, I believe. I do believe that there may be more tucked into that. But I think in the context of what he's saying here, he's really trying to stress that it hasn't been as long as you think in terms of eternity, in terms of God's eyes. Jesus is still coming. So then he clearly tells us in verse 9, why the delay? He says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, if he promised it, it's going to happen. Don't worry about that. He hadn't forgot about it. He hadn't got lazy. He hadn't gone on vacation. He hadn't got tired and now is not able to bring it to pass. No, he says, God's not slack concerning his promise. It will happen. But he says, uh, he says, God is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in other words, he's saying here that the only reason it hasn't happened yet is because the Lord loves people so much. He's waiting and pleading still to this very day so that all who will receive him can come in under this time of, of grace that he has poured out to us and can answer his call and become saved and enjoy eternal life with him, become a part of his bride. That's what it is. He's waiting and he's longing for you and for me. Anybody that, that hasn't come to him yet, he's waiting on you. He's calling and wooing you. He's calling out for you to become a part of that as well. That's why Jesus hasn't come yet. It's because there's more people receiving his invitation. You know, it spoke, um, Peter spoke earlier in this book about making your calling and election sure. That word for calling in the Greek means an invitation. And you know, when you get an invitation, usually like, especially if it's to a wedding or some major formal celebration, there will be a little card in there that says to RSVP. You answer the call and you tell them, yes, I'm coming. No, I'm not coming. Jesus has given an invitation and is still giving that invitation until he returns. He's sending forth a call. He's inviting you to come into the family of God. He's inviting you to know him personally. He's inviting you to be forgiven of your sins and to be clean before him. He's inviting you to come to a place of repentance because it's there that he will meet you. He will grant mercy and forgiveness to you and he will wash your sins away and make you a brand new creation when you come to repentance. So that's why he still hasn't come yet because there's more people that he's inviting. 
would you respond? Would you RSVP and call upon him and respond to him? Praise God. But he does go on and he says, the day of the Lord is coming and it will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it'll come quickly when you're not expecting it. He explains the end of the earth and its elements that they will be burned up with fire at the last day, the day after the Lord has come and set up his kingdom at the end of that, there will be this fire and the earth and heavens, the outer space and the planets and so forth as we know it will be burned up and it will be made brand new. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. I want to read a few more verses as I draw to a close. Verse 11, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, talking about the earth and the heavens, says since all of that's going to get burned up, then what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's talking here about, he's telling us, okay, while we're waiting, while we're in this season where this hasn't happened yet, it's coming and it will happen. But in the meantime, while we're still alive, how are we supposed to live? What sort of lifestyle should we have? What sort of lifestyle is absolutely necessary? And he says it's holy, a holy lifestyle, devoted to him, our behavior in every area of life. Godliness, he, spe he speaks of. That's the, the kind of life and the kind of behavior that uh, is suitable and befitting for God's name and God's character. It's like living as little Christ. We're living like he would live. We're saying what he would say. We're not doing what he would not do. We're doing what he would do. We're not saying the things that he wouldn't say. We're living like Jesus would live. We're also watching and anticipating his return. Oh, beloved friend, I pray that you are anticipating, eagerly awaiting his return. When it talks about hastening the day of the Lord, it doesn't mean that we can make it happen any faster. But what it means is that it's urging it on. It's like, yes, we're longing for that day to come. We're craving it. We have a yearning for it. And we are urging for that to come quickly, earnestly. And then he talks about this new heaven and new earth that will come. And you can read more about that in Revelation 21 and 22. We'll speak about that when we get to the book of Revelations. But there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. And because of all of this, we need to understand how we need to live in this life. So he goes on in verse 14 and 15. And he says, while we wait, do this. Be diligent to be found in him or by him in peace. Not all worried, anxious, and upset in peace and without spot, without blemish, blameless, a life of integrity and honesty and openness so that people can't bring a reproach against you and recognize that Jesus is saving more people every day that we wait. Praise God. And then I want to read 
17 and 18 to you as we draw to a close right now. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So here again, as Peter's about to end his life, he's about to, I mean, he's not going to end his life. His life is about to be martyred and taken from him. He knows he's about to leave this earth. He knows he's leaving behind a bunch of believers. He's telling them what's on his heart. These are his very last words. And he says, I want you to beware so that you don't fall away and get led away with the error of the wicked. And he says, I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to grow like a tree planted in healthy, rich soil with deep roots in the Word of God, deep roots in the love of God, deep roots in the faith. And then he says, grow up from that. Grow in both the grace and the knowledge of Jesus do you see, it's not all about this hyper grace. I've taught y'all this before. That is not of God. It's not a, we can just live. It's not a license to sin. It's not a, I can just live any way I want to because grace covers it all. No, he says, grow in the grace of Jesus, recognizing what that true grace is. And we talked about that. That's found in Titus 2, 11 through 15. And the grace of God is a teaching grace that will work a godly lifestyle into your life from within. It is a, a grace that will transform your life. So he says, grow in that grace, in that supernatural ability and assurance, uh, ceasing from your works and being totally reliant upon the Lord, but also letting it transform you from within and grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And the way we grow in the knowledge of Jesus is through that constant relationship with Him, living with Him, doing life with Him, talking to Him in prayer and in praise and worship, spending time in His Word to read and to study His Word so that He will then speak to us. So friend, I pray, just as Peter Left, hit, left this world and left these words behind to those he was leaving behind. I would ask that this also in Jesus' name be granted to, to all of us, to you as well. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. May God bless you today, and I pray you can join us for future episodes of Bible Bites.